Hello, Australia. Welcome to the first episode of the Layback Podcast. I'm Jackson Allen, and this is a podcast about Australian climbers and their stories. Maybe you're on the grind, battling public transport or stuck in city traffic, headed to the gym to shred some plastic. You could be getting psyched on the long drive to Munari, or maybe the Arapiles, or maybe the Blueys. Or perhaps you're just waiting for a mate at KP. Our first guest has freed and established lines at all of the aforementioned crags. He is none other than Kim Carrigan. Kim had a significant impact on Australian climbing in the 70s and 80s, freeing Prokel Haram in 78 to establish Australia's first grade 26 in the Arapiles. Over the better part of that next decade, Kim was at the forefront of hard climbing, both in Australia and the world. In this interview, we dive deep. Kim discusses his youth spent hitchhiking to crags around Australia, his time spent traveling the world from Yosemite to Europe, and we go over a few of his aid climbing epics. We go into ethics and philosophies around climbing, his approach to training and climbing hard lines. We cover why climbing became less a part of his life, his post-climbing successes as an entrepreneur, and his thoughts on where climbing is headed in the future. Actually, we pack a whole lot into this 90-minute session. So, enough from me. Let's hear it from Kim himself. So, you're originally from Brisbane. Yeah, I, I was born in Brisbane, 58, a long time ago. Um, I had a very sporty father and a very musical mother. So, I ended up um, being completely useless at sports and uh, became a quite accomplished, accomplished pianist. Um, so I ended up doing that. I practiced as a pianist for, for many years, up until I was about 16 or 17, in fact. Um, at the age of 12, 13, my dad got moved to Sydney, and so we ended up, as a family, we moved to Sydney, and I ended up at Sydney Grammar School, where there was uh, a club called the Endeavour Club, which got people into climbing to some extent, and that was one of the initial triggers um, about climbing for me. So you were a pianist for, for a while as yeah, well? Yeah, up until I actually did studied right the way through to my MSA, which is a relatively high standard of music exam. And I did um, music theory to the highest level um, that was possible at the time. When I was 14, I'd passed my HSC music at HSC level already at 14. So but the last two years of my HSC, I, had, I could sit around for a period a day and not have to go to school so it was an amazing time I mean I was one of the only in fact I was the only kid at school that didn't have to study for every subject so I had one already ticked as I say ticked it when I was 14. So your mother was into sport? No mother's into pianist so she was a musician. She was the pianist? Yeah okay. my dad was um, cricketer footballer his brother was played for, for Queensland and Australia cricket um, they, they were all into ball sports and I couldn't hit a ball if I saw it if I didn't see it couldn't hit a ball to save myself. You got into rowing at one point as well, didn't you? Oh, only because it wasn't a ball sport. And I had to do a sport. And one of the challenges at grandma was we had to try and fit in, but at the same time we had to not fit in. And um, we finally persuaded them that climbing was a sport that should have received the same level of thought and um, time and effort as rowing and or football or other things. But that only happened after I left. It took a long time to get the school to accept that climbing was a valid sport. So we had to do a sport. So 
with my ball sport skills, it was rowing. So you discovered climbing there? Look, climbing was an amazing thing. Um, I sat next to Mike Law because we were both complete and utter nerds. We had no, um, again, no sporting skills. We were not socially competent or apt, and that put the two of us as outsiders at the back of the room. And Michael always had these massive glossy journals about climbing on his knee under the desk. And the classics that I remember were there was one about Rebuffet climbing the midi or something and the other one though that was even more uh, amazing was um, Harding and Caldwell's Ascent of the Nose in 54 and there were pages and pages of this book about Yosemite and I still remember looking at it and going what sort of idiots would do that that's just such stupidity and then Michael go yeah you just can't do it because you're scared okay no I'm not I'm not scared absolutely terrified and he said, well, if you're not scared, just go and do it. So literally a couple of weeks later, um, we joined up to an Endeavour Club activity, which was to go to Naranek and to climb En Passant, which was grade 13. And um, having never been on rock before, I said, yeah, I've abseiled, I can do that. So he said, well, there's the rope, go to the bottom. So we jumped on the rope, we abseiled to the bottom, we climbed En Passant. Thanks for coming, first route ticked. Clean, Clean. first off. That was it, done. On 13. Yep. Was this leading or? Yeah, alternate leads. Alternate leads. Yeah, because okay. we'd seen the pictures. We knew how to do it. <laughs> Help us to understand what it was like at the time in terms of the gear and so forth you were using. Oh, knots, um, slings. Um, there were a few old bolts that you could clip. Um, uh, ball races. Have you known what a ball race is? No. A ball race would be like a, a bearing race out of a motor car or a car or an engine that might be in different sizes. So it could be one, two, three, five centimetres in diameter, different ball races. You'd put a sling through those and you'd use them a bit like a wedge. But unfortunately, when you fell on them, if you fell very far, they'd explode because they were hardened steel. And so they weren't very um, useful. The best things were slings on spikes. So again, climbing at Naranek, which is in the Blue Mountains, it's uh, all sandstone and um, a lot of horns that you can throw a sling over. They were an amazingly useful bit of protection, and that was probably our main piece of protection. So a lot of these things were at the time were kind of gathered from anywhere you could get them. Yeah, bits of cord. We had a manila uh, a manila rope. Um, there were no kern metal, or there may have been kern metal ropes, but we didn't have one. Um, we had a nylon laid rope. Um, we had a um, seat belt, webbing seat belt um, around our waist with a, a couple of loops we tied for our legs. And that was the start of that was us that was us climbing um and there was obviously some climbing gear available because people like eubank and bryden allen and um, those guys had been climbing for a number of years but the equipment was exceedingly primitive exceedingly hilariously primitive actually so that was really the start of climbing and then it was just so obvious that that was a fantastic thing to do that um came back from that and we were pretty much hooked and it was it was quite bizarre. I mean, the Endeavour Club that had this promotional, promoted climbing through the school very quickly um, abdicated all responsibility for us. They sent home letters to our parents and said, we do not provide responsibility for the activities of these children because they are going beyond what we're prepared to um, assist with and uh, accept. So if they wish to do it, at your, it's your responsibility and not theirs. And at that point, our parents said, oh, 
well, I suppose if you think you know what you're doing, go for it. And so we did. And literally from that point, we were climbing a lot and uh, we started traveling every weekend was the this outer metropolitan excursion used to cost 50 cents friday afternoon at central and back on sunday night at strathfield my dad picked me up from the station at nine o'clock on sunday night and um, next friday i'd be back on the train again so your your parents were quite happy for you to just kind of head out for the weekend well difficult to believe that that was the case but it seems like that was the case um I know I felt I get I used to get a lot of, um, I wouldn't say grief, but a lot of, have I done my homework? Um, and I'd always managed to have done it because I didn't really need to do any at all. So what I did was done during the week. And um, so by the, by the weekend, my work was done. And the discussion was always, well, if you don't let me go climbing, what do you want me to do? Just sit around the house all weekend because I'm not going to do anything else. <laughs> and they seemed to accept it. And I guess the more I did it, the more confident that they became and the more comfortable they became that I wasn't going to kill myself or hurt myself. And I guess they were also keen to see that I was you know, so excited and enthusiasm, enthusiastic, I should say, about this activity that they were prepared to back it. And I don't think that's very common these days. You know, like I don't know, I don't, I don't see um, other parents today necessarily emulating that level of trust and confidence in their children. If they did, kids would walk to school themselves. They wouldn't be dropped at the door. I think it's a very different um, society that we're living in today that does not condone the sort of activities that we spent most of our, in fact, all of our childhoods um, pursuing. Because you and Mike hitchhiked at one point. To... We hitchhiked everywhere, not just one point. We hitchhiked when we were 15. We hitchhiked um, to Rapleys for school holidays. I hitchhiked to Tasmania and I had to fly. I had to, in fact, one trip I hitched across the, the, the strait. I got a lift with a car who was actually going through and I hitchhiked straight through across the Bass Strait on the boat with the guy that was gave me the lift. Another time I flew, but you know, when I was 15, um, I hitched to Tasmania. 16, I hitched to Tasmania. And this was from Sydney. Um, I ended up going out with Mike Law's sister for a while. And she lived in Wangaratta. And literally, when we weren't climbing in the Blue Mountains, we were hitching to Wangaratta for the weekend as well. So hitchhiking was a really common way to get around Australia in, in the 70s. Is any ever any kind of hairy moments? No. None at all. I mean, I, it, we didn't always hitched together. Quite often it was on my, on my own. The number of times I still remember getting the, cab, the, the, the tram to Coburg and then walking out to the Broadmeadows Ford factory and standing there and hitching to Sydney hundreds of times and never any issues. No. Different, different view on the world back then, yeah. I guess so. But have people really changed? Or is it just that we've, we've become more vocal about seeing the problems? I can't really believe that people are actually any different. I just think we're more paranoid and we've become more soft in our preparedness to be life resilient. And to climb hard, you need to be damn resilient. It's a hard activity to be good at and it's a hard activity to develop and it's a hard activity to travel the world doing it when you're doing it pretty much on your own. There's no support structure. There's no 
national infrastructure today. You know, suddenly climbing has become an Olympic sport. For God's sake, you know, like talk about infrastructure. Really interesting. I was just looking at Adam Ondra's um, little video of the first ascent of silence just the other day. And there we've got Adam's manager. We've got Adam's physio. We've got his builders who are building him walls. We've got his support team for his social well-being. We were hitchhiking on our own, Sydney to Melbourne, so we could go climbing. You didn't have any of those things. We didn't have those, and today it's a different world. Yeah, there's that huge support structure there. But even for general people, you know, just the fact that there's other people and there's a lot of other people climbing. Um, probably not at the same level on rock, which is an issue, but there's a lot of people climbing very hard on plastic, obviously. Very different sport, but still it's the, obviously involves the same basic underlying activity. On that support network and kind of getting back to when you finished school, as I understand, you did pretty well at school. Yeah, yeah, I sort of finished my HSC with distinction. I'd already been, um, as I said, I'd done my music when I was 14, so I'd already had that subject. That was a high honour when I did that. Um, I'd already been uh, accepted into ANU without having to do even do the HSC based on my historic results. So I was able to get a deferral on that, that, that acceptance, which I never took up in the end, but I had that sort of as a backstop that if I wanted to come back and study, I'd already been accepted into uni. So I could. Um, but uh, so yeah school was really easy for me did you actually spend any time at university yeah well not that year not those years um i think 10 years later i went to melbourne uni just for a year or a year and a half in the end um i did um, history and philosophy of science pure maths um just sort of building on that nerd all those easy all those nerdy easy subjects from that i liked in the past um one of the great days with my pure maths is I had this pile of textbooks I was working through and of course we'd gone to Frenchman's Cap for the summer to climb uh, De Gaulle's nose mm -hmm. and um, I'd carried the textbooks in with me so I, just, I knew it was going to rain before we were sat there for two weeks doing nothing so at least I could work through my maths for a couple of weeks while I was in there and interestingly um, at the same hut at the same week um, one of my professors from Melbourne Uni was walking through and stopped for two for a week at the hut with us, and ended up I had a full on one one on one with my professor at the Tahuni hut at Frenchman's Cap, studying pure maths for the week. <laughs> you know, you talk about those support networks, so and and how climbing has just this huge support for it now. Mm. But you you finish school and you have like the world is your oyster. Absolutely. And and but you go climbing. That is your oyster. Why wouldn't that be the most amazing thing in the world that you could do? Um, so when I finished school, I, I, my last exam was a midday finish. And at one o'clock, I was hitching to the bungles. Um, literally the same afternoon, walked out to school, threw my uniform in the bin, and I was on the road to climb in the bungles. Um, a week later, I was um, flying to Lord Howe Island to try and do a first ascent on Ball's Pyramid. So I was there for a month, did that. Um, came back from that, went to New Zealand, and I thought mountaineering—that's what—that's what this is all about. You know, rock climbing's great, but I must be—I must be missing something. Mountaineering must surely be the be the activity I should be doing. And um, climbed the first mountain, which was Tasman. Second mountain, I climbed Cook. And at the end of that, I just thought, this is a load of rubbish. 
I cannot imagine why anyone would bother to get up at midnight. So you're climbing in the dark in a place where if you turn your head, something's going to fall on it or there's likely to be an avalanche. And then on the way down, you're going to fall in a crevasse. It was just completely and utterly anathema to me. So I had to go, I had to leave and uh, I had no money. So I had to go and work for a month to earn some money so I could get back home. So I gave up. That was the end for me of mountaineering completely. Um, came back to Australia and um, I'd actually had, I was really keen to go to the, go climbing. Um, and I ended up falling off a boulder problem at Pittington and I smashed my left wrist really badly, smashed my scaphoid, uh, dislocated every bone in my wrist and um, went to the local hospital. They just put me in plaster, sent me home and said, thanks for coming, It'll, we'll see you later. Two days later, my fingers were blue. My whole hand was completely and utterly swollen, frozen, nearly dying. Went to see a doctor in Sydney and uh, realised what I'd done. So he had to do major repair. It was one of the first screw, scaphoid screwing operations done in Australia. So he screwed my scaphoid, completely relocated all the bones in my wrist that had been dislocated, plastered me up, and that was me for around the next three months. So at least it gave me an opportunity to work. So I spent three months risking a cast, earned some money, and got myself ready to go to the US. You climbed in Australia. Um, but you wanted to go to the US. Well, I mean, what you imagine starting my climbing for me, what I started climbing for was to look at was these books under Mike Law's desk of the nose. Yeah, I really wanted to go to Yosemite. I wanted to go to Yosemite so badly at 16, you wouldn't believe. So I you know I worked, saved some money. As soon as my wrist was out, I started climbing again, and um, very quickly I was back to sort of climbing reasonable standard, which was pretty average at the time I mean well it was good at the time but it's average obviously by today's standards I mean I think we were climbing 21 or 22 at that point and interesting I mean again that was something that I'd climbed at that standard for four or five years and hadn't really improved all I'd done is done all the routes that were available you know in our local area and they were 20 21 that was the hardest things available at the time so all of those climbs that could have improved my climbing you know I'd done or there was nothing further to do so I was really just wanting to go to Yosemite. That was for me, it's like this holy grail. So November, middle of winter, no one goes to Yosemite in winter. It's too cold to climb. November, I was on a plane to, to San Francisco. I arrived at four o'clock in the afternoon and the experiences that I had over the years told me you walk out the airport, out of the plane, out of the terminal, onto the freeway and at the ramp outside of the freeway, I started hitching. In the US, you just started hitching? Yep. And I hitched that night to Yosemite. And I got into Yosemite at five in the morning. In fact, five in the morning, I hitched all night. And my last lift was from uh, Merced up over the high country because the, uh, I didn't come in through, I came in through Tuolumne. Finally got into Yosemite about you know, dawn and uh, fell straight into the um, rescue camp in, in Camp 4, which was where people like Bridwell were hanging out, Werner Braun, Ron Kauf, John Backer, all of the sort of the famous people that I'd I'd really wanted to get to know and there I was. I was with them and that was it. And from then I started climbing a little bit more seriously. How did you feel going in to, you know, this is this is Mecca. This is Stone Master City and yeah. I was a total bumbly by comparison, but I wasn't going to be for much longer. And that was my intent was to climb with my peers. 
you know, I saw the best climbers in the world at that point as my peers, even though I wasn't one because I'd come from Australia and Australia didn't have any good climbers because we didn't have any hard routes. So no one could be any good. <laughs> so you were, you were top of the pack in Australia. Was yeah, but that's rubbish. Time, yeah. And that's always, I mean, I hate, for me, anyone that thinks that they're king of their castle, it's mm. a waste of time. Like there's no, if you can't come out of your own castle and go and play it with the, you know, the, the your peers in the world, you're just not going to cut the mustard. So that was always my intent. So you spent a bit of time in Yosemite then? Oh, look, I was there for years. Um, that particular trip I spent um, over all up over 12 months in Yosemite. I actually lost my air ticket because I'd stayed longer than 12 months. Um, but it was, it was a harsh... Harsh initial starting point because it was middle of winter and there's not that much. A, the days are very short and there's not that much climbing you can do in the middle of winter. Mm. But, you know, we did some really stupid things. I mean, one of the most amazing things, I met a guy called Gordon Smith from Scotland. This was day four in Yosemite. And it also, you know, I wanted to climb the big walls, Salafay. There it was right in front of my nose. I had no gear. Um, he had no gear. So we bought, well, we had a rope and we had 26 carabiners. Um, we had two pins and we had a bit of other bits and pieces. He had a Berghaus Cyclops pack. Um, so we bought a haul rope, which was bright orange nine mil. And we headed off to climb the Salafay with 26 carabiners, the two of us, um, a haul rope and a Berghaus Cyclops pack. Do you know what people would take these days for the Salafé if they were doing it for the first time? They comparison? certainly wouldn't take that. <laughs> They'd take a bit more? They would take a bit more. They would take a full rack of obviously cams and gear and haul bags and, you know, everything else. But the hilarious thing was that, you know, we'd heard people fix ropes at the start. So you climb up, you get as high as you can the first afternoon, and then you wrap back to the ground and you'd be on the ground. So the first night, or first afternoon, I climbed up... Um, too far to get back to the ground. So I abseiled back as far as I could and I got back to 10 metres off the ground when our ropes ran out and we bivouacked the first night on this ridiculous sloping footstool thing 10 metres off the ground on our first night on the Salafay. <laughs> Absolute beginners. Total ridiculous um, mistakes you can't possibly imagine anyone making but we were able to make them. And then I still remember we, you know, the next morning we, well, we didn't really sleep, but we got up and you know, as soon as light came, we started climbing and off we went. And um, we managed to get to some ledge that, that night, which was just unbelievably comfortable. And um, In comparison? Oh, it, it was a palace. Like it was comfortable no matter what. It was flat, room enough to lie down and sleep. And um, it was fantastic. So that we felt really good after that. And then I still remember climbing the last headwall cracks, which now go free. Um, with 26 carabiners, you basically don't have much gear. So you end up with everything on one carabiner when you get to the belay, which is what you've got to then use to also clip yourself to the anchors. Um, and away you go. But, you know, it took us six days, I think, in the end, which certainly nothing special in terms of speed, but it, compared to the, the level of primitiveness with which we approached the task was... Uh, it was unparalleled in stupidity, I'm sure. I'm going to pause here for a minute. 
Kim and I recorded about three hours of audio, which I've edited down to about half that. Some of those edits are relatively seamless, but others less so. There was some content that I just had to put in though, like this tidbit from when Kim did an introduction for the film Valley Uprising. They wanted me to do an introduction to, to that film, talking about, I guess, the history of that happened when the film was, the, 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 the events that the film was made about. Because I was there, like I lived right through that. That was exactly the vintage I was there. I'm in the dope plane. I was at the dope plane. I got. Hey, you were at the dope plane? Yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So I pulled out a bale out of the lake and bloody ended up. So I was in the Yosemite for a long time. Um, and that was right across that whole week, that whole period. In fact, the, the week I arrived in Yosemite and hitching was the week that the plane crashed in Yosemite in the upper, Merced, in, uh, upper Lake Merced. That was ideal timing. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Did that help fund your uh, it your es- gave me a second, Yeah, it gave me a second, um, a second run at it for sure. Yeah, I ended up coming back to Australia for three weeks and climbed a heap of routes, and then uh, went back to the assembly for another go. And this way I did the PO because the only way I could afford to do the PO was by having um, had had you know, the, the dope plane thing because that allowed us to buy a, the gear, um, to, do the gear to do it with. Yeah. There's no way we would have been able to, um, no way we would have been able to afford a gear rack to climb the PO with the sort of money we had. Like you know, I had no money. I never had any money. That's an interesting thing I'd like to touch on. You know, because you you're training really hard, and you look at some of these climbers of the time, like Jerry Moffat and so forth, um, Ben Moon, uh, and you hear about their diets mm. being really sparse. Yeah, like I no need money. a croissant for breakfast, and then I'd go and climb hard all yeah, day. Yeah, you know, I mean, what, what did your diet look like at those times? Muesli, muesli. Yeah, bowl of muesli in the morning, and then climb all day. That's it. That's it. Yeah, you don't eat. Oh, I don't eat. Hard to eat lunch today. Yeah, because you can't. You can't eat and climb. Well, if you've got food in your stomach. Your body's digesting the food. It's not giving you muscle energy. So you can't have... If you want to climb during the day, you can't eat. Well, I don't believe you can eat anyway. That's my... I'd rather um, just drink water. And then when I'm finished climbing, then I eat. But if you eat, you feel heavy, so you can't climb. So... And it's a power-to-weight sport. Well, but it's also... The blood is going to your stomach rather than to your arms or your fingers. So for me, it's not not very... um, even today, like if I want to go climbing in the afternoon, I just don't have lunch. In fact, I don't have much lunch normally. I'm used to just having a good breakfast and then dinner. Now back to Kim's time in Yosemite. And all of a sudden, you've got all this climbing that you can do mm. that, that you didn't have access to mm. in Australia, some of the hardest routes in the world. Mm. How did your climbing progress once you're exposed to that? Oh, look, as soon as you start to climb on harder routes, I mean, you, the same way you progress today. I mean, the first thing you try is a, you know, 510, oh, that was okay. So then you try a 510 plus, hmm, okay, that was okay. Then you go, well, let's try a 511 minus or an A. So, okay, that was a little bit harder, but okay. Then maybe you do a couple more 511s and you go, oh, let's try a 511B. Oh, that's a bit harder. Let's try. And, you know, within a few weeks, we'd worked through um, quite a lot of those routes so that I guess the level of climbing that I was climbing at within two months of being in Yosemite was probably around 25, 24, 25 by Australian standards okay. at that point. Um, and that's going from around 21 when I got there. There, there wouldn't have been any routes in Australia that, that were no. that hard at that point? No, no chance. So no. you were climbing harder than, than what you could in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. Because there were no routes? Yeah, there's no okay. routes to be done here. 
and, and then you went back to Australia. Well, that's, yeah, that's typically what I did wherever I, you know, over a number of holidays or a number of trips that I made to different parts of the world was I'd go there and I'd climb, you know, pretty intensely and improve and get stronger and then go back to Australia and just go, you know, blitz new routes or, and, and create a whole range of stuff that hadn't been done. I mean, that's really what happened with Prokel Haram. You know, that was a different, another different couple of years later, but, you know, I'd been climbing, I can't remember where, probably Yosemite or probably the States, um, or it might have been Europe, but climbing much, much harder than was done in Australia, then going back and all of a sudden just look around and all you can see is opportunity. And every time you step on something, you climb it. And it just gets harder and harder because you've got more and more vision and everything you climb is more and more possible and it just feeds itself. Yeah, and because it, it was 1978, that's kind of like touted as this breakout year for you. Yeah, but that I guess that's just from the Australian perspective. I mean, you were already climbing. already climbing at roots of that standard. Um, yeah, but it was more what what really made the transition in Australia possible was this whole plethora of potential routes which were already prepared. You know, because they'd already been aid routes. So Arapalus was unique in that there's there were there were dozens and dozens of aid routes from the previous generations that had been bolted or pegged or whatever. So you could just go up on them and start climbing. You didn't have to think, oh, God, I'm going to have to wrap that and repair it and put a bolt in or see if there's any gear. You just go, oh, well, there's a line there. Someone's been up there before. I can see a bunch of tat or a bolt. Let's just give it a shot. And all of a sudden, you've done it free. And very quickly, that became the driving force or the motivating, motivating force for me to be to, to do all those routes at Arapalus was they were just there and they were just screaming for someone to come and do them. So and I just went and did them. When we talk about the conversation we had a couple of moments ago and you talked about when you got into climbing, Mike Law said, oh, you couldn't do that. Yeah. And I understand that happened with Prokel Haram as well. Someone well, also said, oh, with, that, that can't be done. Yeah, that was part of Chris Baxter was a really, really good motivator in that respect because for him, nothing was possible. Everything that I said, I can do that, he said, no, you can't. I said, so I'd go away for the weekend, come back and ring Chris and go, hey, Chris, did that. He goes, what? I'm going to bear my bum in Burke Street. <laughs> so I'm sure there must have been many naked revelations of his bum in Burke Street because every time one of his prophecies that that would never go free was my driving motivation to go out on the weekend and do it free and come back and tell him that it was done free. <laughs> but they were fantastic time because no one else was, there was no one else doing this. Mm. Um, you know, Mike, as Mike Law had sort of, he stayed in Sydney and he was had his own little agenda of stuff he was doing, but he wasn't really climbing hard. Mm. Mark Moorhead hadn't come along at that stage. There was really no one pushing the limits because in Australia, you just climb what's there. There wasn't this, there wasn't a focus on, hey, I've been overseas, I've climbed in Europe, I've climbed in the States, I've seen what other people do with climbing and now I want to do it here. There was no one else doing that. So it was a, it was a golden opportunity, and um, yeah, it just became me that was doing it. And it's nothing; it wasn't an ego thing. It just happened to be no one else around. Mm. And for me, it was just such a self-motivating passion mm. to make these things or to climb these things because they were just slapping me in the face, saying, "Hey, here I am, come climb me." So like, okay, let's do it. And you had quite an impact because I guess now when I open up the guidebook for Arapolis, it says it refers to the Carrigan regime and, uh, and it suggests that uh, it was your training, work ethic and methodical approach rather than a particular gift for climbing that was the reason for your climbing prowess. Um, 
Hey, what what are your thoughts on that that viewpoint? Look, it's really easy to belittle anyone's efforts, and I think that that's Australian. The, the Australian mentality is very very negative against people who choose or wish or think or want to perform or want to excel outside the norm, and it's it's, it's that you know, the tall poppy syndrome or whatever it might be. But it's always really easy to to um, to knock other people's efforts, especially if your own are lacking in the first place, which was pretty much the case for, for most of the knockers. Mm. And look, there's no doubt, there's way more naturally gifted climbers than I ever was, but those same naturally gifted climbers may not have had the motivation that I had or may not have had the work ethic or the wish to train or the methodical approach, all of which are pretty important. Indeed. And it's only when you get someone who has the same level of training approach, the same work ethic, the same methodical approach, and who's naturally gifted that you end up with an Adam Ondra and or a, maybe a Chris Sharma. But um, whilst those guys perhaps were slightly more naturally gifted, they would also have had very, 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 or they have very strong um, focus on all of the things that that I had a very strong focus on as well. Yes. Were you just just climbing? Were you, were you doing any training that we would that we would now look at as being training? For yeah, climbing? yeah, I did a lot of training actually, especially when I got when I was climbing really quite well. Like when I got up to climbing thirty thirty one, I was I was doing a lot of training. I used to we used to do a lot of training on back ladders, um, double double treble laps, uh, um, rung, rungs. What, what is a back ladder? What is it? Oh, caving ladder. So you get a okay. caving ladder, tape the um, climbing tape on the on the um, the rungs so that you can stick to them. And then sling it up underneath, say a uh, big slippery dip. Okay. So we had a slippery dip. I was living in Adelaide at the time, and I was working trying to save money for my next overseas trip. Yeah. And um, in one of the local parks, there was a huge slippery dip. You know, like one of those massive ones that you know, if you slid down today, that, like they wouldn't have it today because it would be totally workplace health and safety and anonymous. Anonymous. You wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, it would have already been ripped down and cut up in pieces. Just a sheet of steel with yeah, two, two kind of rods, rods either side, side of it. I think we all fell off those, those as children. Like, this one would have been 15 or 20 metres long. Like it was massive. Um, so we climbed to the top of that, strung our ladder underneath it, tied it to the bottom, and we had a perfect training facility. And so we'd do hours of back laddering We'd do hours of traversing on um, bluestone walls. I used to spend at least two sessions in the gym doing weights. Everything from pull-ups with weights. I mean, we do pull-ups with 180 kilo type weight belt things on. It's a massive one or two set of reps, just massive power, power pull stuff. Um, so you got very strong. We got pretty strong, yeah, very strong. Um, and again, I mean, I guess that was like when when I went back to the states in uh, must have been early 80s, sometime. I can't quite remember the year at this moment, but at that point we'd been doing this sort of level of training and there was no doubt that we were stronger than any of the climbers in the US, which was why, you know, things like America's Cup got done and, and, the, and the slagging I'd made of American climbers because they were so complacent. And, um, you know, that was a, such a contrast to when I'd been there in the you know, years past and they'd been so much ahead of what we were. Mm-hmm. And it was so clear they'd stagnated while this approach, I suppose, that I'd built, I mean, this methodical training and work ethic approach for climbing wasn't that common. Mm. So it certainly wasn't common around the world and it was definitely not common in the US. And so going back to the US, having spent a couple of years under my regime um, meant that we were way stronger climbers or I was a way stronger climber than anyone I climbed with in the US at the time. Mm. 
Do you think there's other factors though? I mean, outside of strategy, outside of strength that might, you know, play into how, how well someone climbs or how, how much they can push the envelope? Yeah, I, I, I actually think there's a, a um, I have a, a theory about your approach to, or your, your success in climbing is a function of your um, cultural or your position that you see yourself in the status quo. So someone who really wants to, or is a leader in every aspect of their lives is more likely to be a good climber than somebody who is more common, like a, a commonly a follower. And it doesn't matter where that person's um, natural or otherwise climbing ability might sit based upon that social hierarchy will sort of determine where they actually and how hard they're able to climb. So someone who's, if, if the standard of the day were 24, which when I formulated this theory, I think it was, I was climbing 24. Someone else who would have typically been a follower was climbing 20. And that four grade gap between how they saw themselves in the world versus how I saw myself in the world was fixed. A year later, that same person was climbing 22 when I was climbing 26. And they'd moved up, they'd trained, they'd done all the same stuff, but they'd only improved to the still four grades behind where I was climbing. A year later, I was climbing 28, and that same person was climbing 24, but hadn't got any better. He was never going to climb 25 until I climbed 29. Do, do you think that that was just two years of training under their belt? Or? No, I think it's uh, I, I think it's a, a function of how people feel comfortable with where they sit in the in the pecking order overall. So I think there's a I think there's a strong correlation between ability to climb at a certain standard and how you see yourself in the world. This is one of my theories. <laughs> okay. And you, you weren't afraid to be on the outfield based on you? Never. No. I was never on the infield, ever, anywhere. Anywhere. Whole life. That's why I've always been slagged because I'm always, I've never been one to go, I want to be part of your team. And it's a real problem. I mean, I'm so much of a loner. I really don't have any interest on being anyone else's team. And so if you're always the outsider, you're going to be the one that cops the shit. But you, you were a part of a team when you did the Pacific Ocean Law, right? There were four of you? <sighs> yeah. Um, yeah we, were, we were a group of four. How did, your, how did you gel with that, given what we were just talking about then? Look, I think we were a group of four. I would... I don't think we were that much of a team. Um, in fact, it was two Canadians and Greg Child and me. And Greg and I had had a great relationship as kids. You know, Greg um, Greg was very, very similar in his his development and upbringing with respect to his climbing. But he he was a very different um, had a different, very different upbringing. He didn't go to Sydney Grammar. He went to a state school. He had um, a different friend set. But still, he found climbing in a similar way. He found it, he was actually he used to chase lizards, and lizards got on rock, and then he climbed up on rock and started climbing. But all of a sudden, he became a you know very keen, obviously climber, mountaineer over the years. Great guy to climb with. And I'd known Greg for years. We'd always come across each other, you know, as kids in the mountains. And he was in Sydney. He lived in Sydney as well. Um, but we never really climbed much together. We more just you know saw each other and spent time at the pub, maybe after climbing. So interestingly, when he was in the in Yosemite, he was also keen to do um, 
to do the PO, so we got together. And I can't even quite remember how we ended up with two Canadians. Um, but again, we started out, um, two of us just went up and climbed the first half of the, or first two-thirds of the route on our own. First, sorry, first, first third of the route on our own. And then the other guys came and joined us, and, and after that we, we finished the route. I think we were up there for about five days. But it's, to me, that's, that's just an activity you're doing together. It doesn't really, you know, yeah, there's, some, there's obviously a team element because you um, depend upon someone to hold your rope and pull the bags and, um, you know, you're sharing space and time. But if someone didn't complete their pitch, then someone else would have. Like, it wasn't like we were necessarily really working. I mean, we didn't work that well as a team. We got to the top and that was sort of it. I heard you were wailing away on the final pitches of that route. Like you were, you were the one up there giving it socks to get everyone to the finish. Yeah, I wanted to get out of there and there was a lot of piss farting around. Um, but anyway, look, we did that and it was the hardest, that would have been the hardest aid climb in Yosemite at the time. So um, technically it wasn't that challenging. As I say, that skill set that I developed through um, some really nasty aid climbing as a kid meant that I had a pretty good feel for what was going to work. Um, you see a lot of these A5 things. If you fall off, you die. You fall off, you fall the whole pitch. Every bit of you know gear will rip. The point is you don't fall off and you just make sure that the bits you put in are good enough that they're going to hold you. So that be copperheads, be it ropes, be it skyhooks. Um, it's just a mathematical puzzle, a technical puzzle. Just put the various bits together and you end up at the end of the pitch. But it's slow going. Like On the second day, I led the whole day, I led two pitches. And that was it. We'd gone 100 metres. And that was our second day on the wall. But they were both, they were two of the crux pitches. Yeah. But, you know, it's just very slow going. And you're scared. You're so scared the whole way. Like every, on the, when you're leading, every second that you're on lead, you're scared. This is very emotionally taxing draining. to be up there yeah. for five, five days. Five, six mm. days leading, yeah. And especially if you're leading a lot of it, which I led three of the A5 pitches. Um, I think there's seven or eight A5, I can't remember how many pitches. Quite a few A5 pitches on it. But it was one of the original Bridwell classic um, first ascents. So my aid climbing was another whole vintage of lifestyle that didn't really, it sort of ran in parallel with my free climbing as well. Back when I was 15, at that infamous starting point, mm. we lived in a, a place called Lugano in Sydney. And um, across the road and down the hill, there was a cave. And we're talking a big cave with a big roof. And um, Mike and I, well, Mike was living with me at the time. And we managed to do two A5 aid routes through this roof when we were about 15 as well. And um, I'm sure they were the hardest aid routes, certainly in Australia at the time. They were roofing through roofs. You know, we'd read all the stuff in about Yosemite and how you use ropes, and we'd bought our ropes at the local climbing shop, and we were roping through this roof. It's like, hey, we know what we're doing. And so, you know, because I'd done that, I decided I could go and repeat Eubanks' totem pole. So when I was 15, my first hitching trip to Tassie, I went to totem pole and climbed that with Ian Lewis. So again, I figured that if I could climb final lunacy in the Black Death, which are my two A5 aid routes in Lugano, I'm sure I could do Eubanks route on the totem pole. And as it turned out, I could. 
<laughs> How old were you then? 15. 15. Mm. Out there on that. On that the stack, on the totem pole, yeah. yeah. And we had a hideous time. Um, got to the top and um, the wind was howling through there like a banshee and trying to abseil off. I managed to get down and then when I... I can't remember quite what happened, but somehow or other, um, Ian Lewis trying to wrap down after me, um, he only got halfway down and somehow the ropes got caught. The wind had whipped up around the side of the stack and in the end, he got sort of stuck to the stack and the ropes had wrapped themselves around the sea stack and really hard to get him down. And finally he got him down and then the ropes flapped off again and now we're at the bottom of the sea or the bottom of the, 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 the gulch in the sea night approaching and all our ropes are wrapped around the stack and we can't get out so we finally managed to rig up this jumaring system with like a load hauling system where we could with both our body weights we just ground the ropes down eventually and finally after about an hour and a half of heaving and hoeing we got the ropes down off the top and then they fell straight into the bottom they went wrapped themselves around the kelp in the sea right you know and then we had to pull them out of the kelp as well so we were there for hours. we finally jumaed out in the dark and yeah, what an epic! So that was fifteen. I did a, a number of other routes. In fact, one of the um, I guess always had this passion about doing those big walls. One of the um, funny things when I was that when I again back when I was pretty young, and when I first got to, went to Yosemite, I met uh, John Yablonski, who was a really strange guy. Completely, um, he ended up shooting himself like a very very crazy sort of a character and um middle of winter as i said i couldn't really climb anything much else and it was snowing and miserable conditions so we decided to do the tangerine trip which was a um a4 59a4 route up the middle of the right overhanging side of el cap so it stayed dry but um i climbed that with him in the end and we ended up again sort of a4 was not that hard but the conditions were just astounding. We, I think it was the second day we couldn't climb. It was so it's, it snowed so much, and that the rock was just covered in in ice. So we ended up just hanging in our hammocks. And as we would be hanging there, these things the size of buses would just fly past outside of our sort of not our arm length, but certainly not far from us. Like this howling, screaming thing, as a thing like a bus of ice would fall off the top of the cliff. And you're just in a hammock. Yeah. So not like what we would see now. With... Oh, I know you'd see portal edges. Yeah. We didn't have portal edges. Uh, we had hammocks. Um, and with John Yablonski, who was completely and utterly crazy, we had one book between us, which was Carlos Castaneda's um, book about magic mushroom trips. So he tore that in half so we could read each. Each of us could read half of it. And then we'd swap it. So I think I had the second half of that trip on the first, the first couple of nights. And I got the second half, or the first half, the last part of it. Um, but we were up there for about five or six days again. So I'd always sort of had this quite enjoyment about doing these adventurous multi-pitch things and, and um, I ended up, I think I did about six or eight routes on El Cap in the end. I'd like to discuss a little bit about ethics and I guess the ethics of the time. I understand that a lot of the routes at that time were done with a yo-yo approach or? I'm just going to jump in here for those who would be unfamiliar with the term yo-yo. Essentially, it was the ethic or practice where climbers would lower back to the ground after each fall rather than working a move on the rope, which we would now call hangdogging. Yeah, yo-yo was probably reasonably commonplace. Um, we didn't see it as a, a problem. Um, it was never 
it was never flagged that there was a bad ethic. It was simply, you know, my, my ethic at the time was as long as that I had put all of the gear in on lead from the ground and clipped it from the ground, mm -hmm. that that was deemed from my point of view to be acceptable. Now, around the world, there were different styles that had been developed. Like if you look globally, um, in East Germany, the style was you would climb up, you would bash a ring in, you would hang on the ring, you would bring your mates up, and then four or three or four of you would be hanging on the ring, and then you'd stand on each other's shoulders, and then you'd have another go at climbing another three, four, five, six meters, and bash another ring in, and you'd do the same thing all over again, and bring all your mates up to the same level, and away you go, you'd do a shoulder stand, and off you go. So climbing was based on a team approach by hanging on rings to develop new routes. So that was another style. Then you look at what was being done in uh, Germany. Germany had this red point approach where you could do what the hell you like. You could buddy put ropes, you could put bash bolts in, you could clip every bit of gear, you could do it off aid. All you had to do was pull the rope and then climb it from the ground, clipping the bits of tat or the, you know, the bits of the, the quick draws that were hanging. So that was a red point ascent. You know, no matter what these different styles were, they were all flawed to some extent. There is only one style which is appropriate, or not appropriate, which is clean, and that is on-site, first shot, and if you don't do it that way, then all these others are compromises. So, yeah, like I don't think that the style that we were climbing in was necessarily astoundingly brilliant, but it wasn't any worse than the standard of or the style of climbing that was being used anywhere in the world at the time to do routes of similar standard. And, and you were traveling to those places, seeing these other ethics. Absolutely. I climbed all over the world. I climbed in East Germany. I, in fact, I took my ethic to East Germany, which at the time was, um, was on-site. That's what I really wanted to climb. So I didn't really want to fall off, and especially in East Germany, because if you fall off in East Germany, you can get pretty badly hurt. Like the distance between these rings is often fairly nasty. And it's nasty because, you know, they've had from ring, my first effort is they've had a shoulder stand, which means you haven't even had to climb the first bit. And then they've sort of sprinted and then they've managed to get some bit of tat on and hang and then they've managed to get another ring in. So by the time that they've got you know, six or eight metres between the ring, they've really only climbed maybe four. And if you're climbing it from the ground up on site, you've got to climb past that ring. That gets you stuffed in the first place because they hadn't even previously been climbed. Then you've got to keep going and you've got to clip the next bit of next ring and you've got to keep going, you know, however many times that might take. And if there's rings, that's great. But half the time in East Germany, they use knots. So they didn't use any hardware. It was all done with knotted slings. They still do that. In yeah, some that's places, a style. Yeah, and that's a, a really interesting style. Um, absolutely scary as. I mean, I still remember the, I can still remember today the fear in my mouth on one of these hard routes that I was trying to lead, which I didn't fall off. Um, but the fear that I felt thinking, if I do fall off, every one of these stupid knots is surely going to rip through. Um, but they didn't. And well, they, may have, they didn't because I didn't fall off. But they may have done if I had. <laughs> How did your, I guess, approach evolve over time throughout those, those trips to, to like the eventual ethic, I guess, that, that you would have had in the mid-80s? Oh, like I still think that the single, the first shot approach is ultimately the only style that you really aspire to. Um, everything else, as I said, is a compromise. And the more things that I climbed, the better, the more I tried for this um, first effort, first shot. Um, and if I didn't get it my first shot, I kind of lost interest. So I started to get really demotivated about climbing routes that I couldn't actually just do first shot. 
and that was you know like um, the time I went to the States and when I did um, America's Cup you know they were criticizing our style but if the reality is America's Cup was done on site first shot uh, admittedly I started to put a peg in because I needed a peg for a, the only bit of protection on the route that was sort of useful as a peg but the actual route um, there was no sieging there was no um, hanging around it was literally done straight through on site clean lead and what does that go at now? It's oh, it's 12, 12 C's, it's not that yeah. hard. But it's just, you know, this is in the Cookie Cliff. This is the Cookie Cliff is the most climbed on cliff in America. And in the middle of the cliff, the most obvious line, the Americans couldn't see that that just should be climbed. And all they could climb were things like outer limits and butterfingers and the obvious cracks. But this is such a beautiful seam, they just hadn't bothered. And to me, that was just spanked of laziness um, and, in, and, and complacency. So for me, that was a sort of a statement. Australia had actually just taken the America's Cup That's in right. 83. That's just why I thought this was an appropriate name. I mean, for me, this, this issue about, you know, that the Americans were, had, had, were incredibly complacent about their... They thought they were great and I thought they weren't. So um, it was just an obvious challenge to do something to show them that they weren't quite so great as they thought they were. And America's Cup was um, something we'd just taken from them. It felt like an appropriate name at the time. How uh, did they respond? Oh, they were pissed to the max. <laughs> I mean, how does that go down? I mean, do you just walk in a camp for and say, we just sent this, we've caught it America's Basically, Cup. that's exactly it how back. it went down. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, mean, I actually went, I think I just went across to the, to the uh, rescue camp and told the guys there and, and they were totally, uh, couldn't believe that someone had done a new rig on the cookie. Because um, these were all the, you know, the, 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 the uh, Yosemite um, stalwarts, I suppose. How, how does that not end in a fist fight? How, do those, how does that... Oh, look, it's, it's not... Climbing's not ever been very physical in that respect. They might just want to not to come and drink beers with you afterwards is what's most likely the outcome. Which is disappointing because it's pretty good fun to go and kick back down at the, in, in the village and drink beers after you've had a good climbing session. I still remember the day I did um, the rostrum. Um, because that was, you know, it's, an, it's a great route. It's a long route. It's um, nine pitches, I think, mm. and 512 plus is the last one. And it hadn't been done free or on site or from the ground to the top in one hit. So I did all of those things. So we finished the route about one o'clock. So straight down to the village and you know, a whole bunch of guys there who'd done the route previously. Calc was there and we sat back and we drank beers and talked about the route. It was a fantastic afternoon. So, yeah, some, some really good times in that respect. Um, and that's sort of how the Yosemite word gets spread. It's the, the drinking, uh, kicking back and drinking beers after, after the event. It's not much fist fighting. <laughs> well, I don't think anyone's probably got enough energy because they're either drunk, stoned or too busy hanging out to get that much enthusiasm to have a fight. Because there was plenty of that. Yeah, no. If we look at Arapiles, uh, you there was what a similar culture there in the pines around around those times. Yeah, a big culture developed in the pines, but probably the um, pretty early on, the pines and I had a bit of falling out, and um, I just really couldn't be bothered with camping. I spent so many years of my life camping that the concept of going to camp in the pines on a long term basis was really I was over it. So at that point, I guess I got into the idea of buying houses in Natamuk, mm. which I started pretty early on. I bought a house. Um, and for me, that meant that I'd go to, I'd drive out to the cliff every day, but I wasn't going to be um, hanging out at the pines. Yeah. 
And again, that probably created a bit of an us and them thing as well because there was always lots of people who were hanging out at the Pines mm. and um, we were the people who were living in the town, yeah. <laughs> which is probably a bit, you know, again, probably a bit of an us and them, an us and them scenario, but that's just the way it was. And probably seems uh, not as significant in retrospect. Oh, look, I think today what's happened is that today the scene is living in town. Um, the number of people who camp at Arapolis would be few and far between. Yes, there'll be people who camp there on the weekends, but the long people who come to Arapolis to climb long term will either take a room in town, they'll stay with someone in town, or they'll stay at the pub or whatever it might be, but they'll be based in town, not based out at Natama, at, uh, at the Pines. And I think that's the that's become the norm. So I think we pioneered what was the eventually the status quo. Mm. Much more comfortable. <laughs> Easier to work really hard on a problem. It is. You've had a good if night's you've had sleep. a decent night's sleep, and I still I still remember one night, I I, I, I had a tent. I pitched long term camping spot. I was lying in bed, and for God's sake, I had what felt like this massive rock in between my shoulder blades, and it was so annoying. And I spent all night thinking, why the hell have I got this rock, which didn't used to be there, and now I've got this rock between my shoulder blades. So I got up the next morning and lifted the floor of the tent, and there's a stumpy-tailed lizard has spent the whole night asleep between the shoulder blade, my shoulder blades and driven me crazy all night. And I thought, look, that's enough. I've had enough of this camping business. So I went and bought a house. <laughs> And um, and you were working pretty hard on um, on routes like Ethiopia and, and um, Masada probably Masada, at that point. Yeah. I would have been. I think when I was camping, it was still India. Then after when I started living in town, it was Masada. Mm. So Masada was a, another, I suppose, another long term CG thing. That I think the real problem with for me with Masada was was footwear. Um, the crux is just a couple of really small dinks you've got to stand on. And the footwear that we had at the time just wasn't really cutting the mustard. So I'd climb up to this crux every single time again and I'd fall off the last move. And finally I worked out I needed a different shoe. So I ended up, when I did Masada in the end, I did it with a, a different shoe on one foot to the other. And it looked kind of stupid, but it actually that meant that shoe worked for the hold. And as soon as I had a decent shoe, I could stand on the hold and it was actually pretty okay. And that took ages before I realized that. It's a very common tactic that Adam Andre now uses. Could be. I mean, yeah. it just doesn't seem stupid. I mean, to me, if you've got something that you need a specific bit of um, either edge or width or, you know, something for a, a toe pocket or whatever it might be, you really need to have the, the, the bit that works well for that, for that foothold. And, and clearly, as soon as I did it, it made a difference and I did the route. But it, I spent, again, I was always really good at learning how not to do routes and I spent way too much time um, falling off things rather than being focused get really focused go up and give it your one best shot and if that doesn't work go home come back another day and as I say that that evolution in my thinking you know, happened over a number of years but you know I'm still pretty keen to climb today and if I go out and try a route even today if I don't get it my first shot I really don't have much interest in trying it again that that day or you know, I might come back another week but if I don't get it today I'm not going to try it this afternoon you, you had this on-site approach and you enjoyed doing routes and you were demotivated if you didn't do it that way. But at some point you had to work harder for these oh, other routes. For doing new routes, was a still, for doing a new route was always a different style because you know, it hadn't been done. So for me, the on-site approach was things that had been done generally. So if, it was, if I was going to repeat someone's climb, I would try to do it on-site. 
um, cobwebs. I think I did that second shot. So there was a lot of these things were pretty fast. They weren't, they weren't like they were weak sieges. The repeat, the repeat efforts, the, the siege efforts were the things that were um, new routes where they'd been not, they hadn't been climbed. Like you've run out of the aid routes to free almost. Yeah. And, and now you had to and find now I'm trying routes. to find new routes. Mm. And one of the ones I guess I'm still most proud about is Ethiopia. Um, because that's, that's pretty long. It's a 30 meter lead. It's grade 30, I think. Still, I think it hasn't been, de- maybe it has been degraded, downgraded. Who would know? But I wrapped it, put two bolts in at the top. And then you had to climb India. And then you had to climb the, t- the top section. So when I did that, after I, I bolted it in the morning. I gave it one shot at about one o'clock and I got through to the second bolt, fell off, came back down, sort of packed up and thought I'd go home and then decided stuff it and I'll have another go and I did it next shot. Two. Yeah, but I'd done India like a million times and the, over history, so I didn't have a... It wasn't challenging to have to do India first because I knew how to do India. Because the lines are... No, you start up India, you do India first and then you keep going. So with the... Um, Ethiopia is a, an extension of India. And so it was, but it was, you know, style-wise, I think you couldn't have had a more, a more pure effort of style than how that was done. And that would have been one of my last good new routes to wraps. So at that stage, the style of trying to climb things very efficiently and quickly was there rather than spending you know, months and months on them, which is you know, what happened with the ring route. And, and I think I learned the more you, time you spend on a route, the less likely you are to do it because you become so stupid at it, you lose the ability to believe you're ever going to climb it. So if you start with the ability, with the concept that you will climb it, rather than that you will fall off it, you've got a way better chance of climbing it. So the more you try to, the more you try it and fail, all you learn is how to fall, how to fail. You don't learn how to climb it, you learn how to fail from it and fall from it. And I learned that really, really well on the ring route. Like I learned how to fall off that at every possible move. In fact, there was not one move I did not learn how to fall off. And the ring rat. Yeah. And in fact, one day, I mean, I climbed it. I got to the slab on the top and it'd been raining. And you'd been doing the shopping tour? Yeah. 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 So, so I hadn't even, heavy shopping bags. hadn't even thought I was going to go climbing. I thought, oh, I'll just go and do a bit of a workout on it. Went up there and climbed the thing straight through, got onto the slab and it was just slippery and wet and fell off. So like, oh, that was great. Couldn't do it, ever do it again. Had you named it at that point or? Oh, no, it was just on the ring. Oh, and actually, I probably had named it Serious Young Lizards, I think. And whether it's ever still called that, I, I don't even know what they're called these days. I think I named it fairly early on, but it just became my ring route because it had a couple of rings. So you, you've climbed it, you've just come off the slab at the top, but at some point you decide you don't want to keep pushing oh, I was it. so sick and tired of it. It was just killing me. I couldn't sleep because I just knew I could fall. Every time I went to try it, I knew I could fall off it. And I did. So it just became a self-fulfilling failure. And... Uh, so then I did think, you know, I was, it wasn't like I wasn't fit. I mean, I did Ethiopia, that same vintage, and it was you know, pretty straightforward. So that was a solid, well, for me, I thought that was a solid 30. And it was pretty easy. And at that time, these would have been some of the hardest routes in the world. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And so into the, the mid-80s there, um, eventually, at some point, um, climbing becomes less of a part of your life. Yeah, um, I guess a lot of it came down to sponsorship. I was, I mean, part of the thing about climbing a lot is if you want to travel the world, it isn't free. And you know, how do you earn money in order that you can afford to do that and keep doing it? And so 
you know, I did a lot of things that earned small amounts of money. Like I, I was a correspondent for pretty much every magazine in the world uh, about Australian climbing. I took a lot of photos. I sold a lot of photos to magazines around the world. I was pretty much in correspondence with not every country, but most countries. So everywhere, every European country that had climbing, obviously the US, uh, clearly Chris Baxter and Wild and, and Rock in Australia. And so I was selling a lot of photos and selling a lot of um, mostly news articles or even stories or articles, depending upon what, what, what I was writing. But it wasn't enough. And so I was just looking around the world and thinking, bloody backer, what's he doing that he's got sponsored by Mammoth? A, he's American. And B, he's not doing anything, not even climbing. So I thought, stuff it, I'm going to steal his sponsorship. So, so I went to the trade show in, at ISPO in, in, the, in, in Munich and I climbed over the wall to get in. <laughs> and then I went to the Mammoth stand and then I met a guy called Heinz Weber who was in charge of Mammoth. And I said, Heinz, I think you should sponsor me rather than John Backer. And I went through what I was doing and why and how I would, what things I would do for him. And he said, hmm, come back tomorrow and we'll talk about it. So next day, I climbed over the wall again, went and visited him. And he said, sure, you're on. So basically, um, Mammoth in Switzerland sponsored me um, to climb. And that had a couple of things. One was, I think, um, A, I got money for sponsor, just straight cash. But then for that, I had to do a couple of things. I had to write articles for their catalog and I had to give them some photos. But the big bit was that he agreed to give me a percentage of turnover of any product that I developed for them. So I developed the first quick draw that Mammoth made. Hey, you developed the first quick draw yeah, that Mammoth made? that Mammoth made and one of their harnesses. So, um, and these were like different webbing, number of barco, uh, bath tacks and... and uh, tight at one end and sloppy at the other so that the carabiner at the bottom didn't spin. So there was sort of a few things that were, I don't know if they were unique, but that was certainly the first time that Mammoth had developed, had produced a product like that. So I got 5% of the sales globally of all Mammoth's quick draws and two of their free climbing harnesses, which was pretty good. So for three years, I was probably the highest paid climber in the world because I was getting not just sponsorship, but I was getting commission from all their sales which was fantastic because I didn't have to do anything all I could do is I'd done my you know, that was like two days work um, the, the, the first week I got sponsored and then I never saw them again but I did have this real um, I had a real I felt a real obligation as the fact of being sponsored that I needed to perform and that really got up my nose I really never wanted to climb because I felt someone was paying me to do it. You know, for me, climbing was always such an intensely personal, intensely personal thing that I only ever climbed for myself. I didn't really want to be at the stage where I was climbing and had to perform like a, you know, the carnival monkey, which is how I felt. And on top of that, I ended up um, getting a bit injured. I'd been trying a route um, a couple of days up in Queensland called Schwarzenegger, which HB ended up climbing. It's a 29 or 30 roof. Quite a big, hard, overhanging project thing. And I managed to do most of it, and then I managed to fall out of the lip of the roof, out of a knee 
backstep knee bar thing and tore all of the uh, ligaments across the front of my knee, which ultimately ended up, you know, I ended up with a knee replacement a few months ago as a result of that original injury, which happened um, 35 years ago, or whatever it was. So falling out of Schwarzenegger, I tore a finger in my tendon in my tendon in my finger, and I damaged the tendon in my elbow. I just thought something's telling me it's time to stop. So I went to Switzerland. I spoke to Heinz again and said, "Hey, Heinz, I'm not too happy. Um, great that you're sponsoring me and that you're giving me all this money, but I would actually like a job. Um, I would like a job that was a basis of a job, not a basis of my climbing." And he said, "What can you do?" I said, "Oh well, let's talk about it. what. Can, what have you got on offer?" And what he needed was an export manager. And I said, well, I can do that. So he gave me the job of export managers. And he said, but you've got to give up your sponsorship and no, your um, commissions. I said, oh, well, I'll take half commission for two years. And then after that, I'll give them up. And he agreed. So I ended up on a salary. Um, he got a visa for me. He, paid, he did everything organized for me to come to Switzerland to live. Um, Came home to Australia, uh, came home to Brisbane. Was about to say goodbye to my parents to say I'm going to move in, live in Switzerland for five years. It was a five-year deal initially, and that was the plan. And I um, walked into Mountain Designs and met Meg, my, my current life partner. And I'd sort of recognised her from aerobics for about five years earlier. But we got chatting, went out for dinner, spent the week together. I went back to Switzerland. Um, five weeks later, I sent her a ticket and she came and joined me. And we've been together for 32 years, ever since. <laughs> so she doesn't climb. So the things we do together, it became more important than climbing as well. So um, having moved to Switzerland, it was a great opportunity to start to do other things. So we started, she was into triathlons at the time. So we started to do triathlons. And I spent the next couple of years um, basically doing triathlons with about the same level of enthusiasm that I'd, I'd been climbing. You know, we, we did events nearly every weekend. We did an Ironman or she did two Ironmen in two weeks. Um, we did a number of half Ironman triathlons. Um, again, came back to Australia and did a triathlon here. And just before, you know, at the, the five year or some, uh, about a year and a half before um, my five years was sort of up, um, our daughter came along. She was um, a bit of a surprise to us both. Um, but we ended up having our daughter in Switzerland. And um, we really decided we'd like to get come back to Australia at some point and raise our kids in Australia rather than raising them in Europe. So at the time when my contract was, was basically up, we made the decision to, that we were coming home. And um, so we did. And you... As I understand, developed a bit of a taste for the bread over there. Yeah, just European bread. I love bread. It's um, an amazing staple. Um, sourdough in particular has been one of my, I suppose, favourite foods for many years. Um, and so coming back to Australia, we, we, uh, we looked for good bread and it was thin on the ground. Um, after about two years back in Australia, we ended up um, getting to know a couple of bakers quite well from uh, the Blue Mountains. We'd actually moved to Brisbane. So we're, we're talking really probably now about four or five years after having come back from, from Switzerland. We've been five years in Katoomba, 
done a bit more climbing in Katoomba, met some bakers, had a second kid. Our young, our son was born in Katoomba and um, our kids are now almost at school or our elder, our daughter's only at school age. And um, through the involvement I had at the time with Mountain Designs, we ended up moving to Brisbane and I ended up running the company. And while in Brisbane, we couldn't find bread. So the bread that we've been looking for, that we've been eating in the Blue Mountains, which has been made by our friends, um, we couldn't find. Our friends had moved to Brisbane and they were keen to start a bakery. So we ended up starting a bakery with them so we could find the bread that we wanted to eat. And from that day, um, that was about 22, 21 years ago now, I'm still eating the same bread that we started making in our first little corner store. Well, it was, it was a garage bakery in, uh, in West End. Yeah. Still making bread today now. Yeah. yeah, we're still making bread today. Just a little um, bit bigger scale. Today we make a lot of bread. Today we make a couple of hundred thousand loaves a day. Um, and we make bread on a very, very large scale. Um, we make bread on a global scale. And in fact, we sell our bread all over Australia. And uh, we also sell our breads into the US. We sell some of our breads into, into Singapore and Malaysia, Hong Kong. Um, we supply most of the major supermarkets. And yet we still also supply the same corner store type um, sourdough bakeries that we supplied day one. Do you see a lot of, I guess, correlation at all between climbing and, and your experiences and what you took from that and, and how you've been able to apply that in the, in the business world to this kind of entrepreneurial venture? Yeah, look, business is very similar to climbing, um, but without the physicality. Um, it's, it's very, very similar with respect to that, that risk-taking, that creativity, strategy, entrepreneurialism. I mean, entrepreneurialism with money is, is not that different to creating new routes, you know, without money, obviously. But it's that seeing, a, seeing a, an idea, working on the basics of that idea to turn it into something that's, that's viable, then coming up with a way to actually make it work. That's your projecting, turn it into a route. Businesses, you see an idea, you figure out all the resources you need to make it happen. And ultimately, you put them together in a way that you can um, make them viable and make it happen and make it work. And when you keep seeing ideas, you keep trying to grow. You take risks. Um, you hope that there's reward at the end of it. But you certainly take a lot of risk. And one of the big problems that I have with climbing, well, for me, climbing and versus the, the risk climbing profile that I have versus the risk business profile that I shouldn't have is a big gap because of my, comf my my willingness to take risk is significantly greater than it should be with respect to almost any other venture in humankind. So it's not necessarily a wonderful partner, that, that willingness to take risk because the reality is in business you're unlikely to die, all you're going to do is lose money. Whereas in climbing when you take a risk, there's a fair chance you die. So there's a the, the, the level of comfort that you have or that you're prepared to accept in climbing is, is greater than you should be prepared to accept if you want to be successful in business. I think for me, I'm probably too prepared to take risk and hang the consequences <laughs> because I'm probably not going to die. So you have two children. Yeah. Do they, do they climb now? Or did yeah, you, look, they're both, they're both actually quite competent. Um, my daughter had an epiphany. Um, she went on a European adventure um, last last year, 
And prior to that, you know, yes, we'd always shown them a bit of climbing as kids, but we never had this, it was never our intention to push them to the stage where they would, we wanted them to do what we wanted to do for their lives. We wanted to give them experiences and we pushed them very hard. Like our kid, our kids will tell you the, um, some of the life experiences that they received when they were very young, we would be locked up today as parents if that was, if people thought that was normal. Like we took our children and we did the, when they were five and seven, we did the overland track in Tasmania five days and they carried their own packs. When they were seven and nine, we did the South Coast track. When they were nine and 11, we did the Hinchinbrook walk. We've subsequently done Frenchman's Cap, the Freysenay walk, um, a range of other things as they grew older. And from the first trip where they said, this is the worst thing we're ever going to do in our lives, by the end of it, it was the best thing they've ever done in their lives. And the levels of skills and self-reliance that they developed through those activities will last them for their lives. And it set them in an amazing stead. I mean, they are both incredible people in their own rights. Um, so Kira, in her epiphany, she went to, she'd she done a bit of climbing. She was quite a good plastic climber. In fact, she is good on plastic, very good. Um, she went to France, fell in love with Fontainebleau and Chamonix, came back, literally sold up everything. She got rid of the business, sold her stuff and she's moved back and now she's living in Fontainebleau. So she moved to Fontainebleau in, um, in July this year and she subsequently, just last week, finally got an apartment she's moved into and now she's living in Fontainebleau. So she climbs pretty regularly with a whole bunch of very, very competent French boulderers and really trying to push you know, her abilities as a, as a boulderer. Not really that interested in climbing on, on lead but does a bit, climbs about 7A or B. So she's not, you know, she's not incompetent, but she's not really focused on, on leading, whereas she's very keen about bouldering. Mm. And Toby, on the other hand, he's, um, he's been a, he, he finished his degree as a, a double degree with, as a solicitor. He um, subsequently uh, gave up uh, all his jobs and um, spent the last 12 months hanging out in Italy with his partner, just hanging out cycling he's a very good cyclist a road cyclist so spending a lot of his all this time road riding doing a bit of uh, um, workaways so they'd work for a couple of weeks for accommodation and stuff and there's been the last six weeks they've been in sicily walking and hanging out cycling and he's just landed a job with backroads as a, an adventure guide um, u.s company starting later in early next year so even though he's a fully trained solicitor, business analyst, um, he'd rather be out there having a go at doing something else. So um, he's going to be a, a cycle slash uh, walker, walking guide. And um, so, yeah, so they've both, um, I suppose, shunned the, the materialistic conventional uh, route, mm. which is something I guess I've clearly hoped that would be the case. And, you know, for me, that was important from when I was 15 or 16. I you know, never, never felt much attachment to materialistic values. Mm. You've obviously kept climbing off and on and over the years and, and you've seen your, your 
daughter now bouldering mm. so you have a bit of exposure to the the sport in its current modern state mm. um i mean what are your thoughts on modern climbing we're about to see it going to the olympics when you look back on your time and now what, what i mean i think i think the single thing about the olympics that's going to be relevant is that it will elicit people who otherwise may not get into climbing who potentially can be the future of climbing you know i think you know, right this minute, as I say, I mean, Adam Ondra, I've just taken a bit of an interest recently in, in his ability and, he, and what he's been doing. And it's very clear, you know, when you look at him physically and the way he motivates himself and the way he prepares and trains, that we've probably reached a bit of a, I won't say a limit, but I think we've reached a level where from here on, the next steps are going to be more difficult than even the last few steps to get from, say, where a Chris Sharma was to where an Adamondra is. I think there's probably a generation gap between those two, I think it'd be fair to say. And I think Chris Sharma would have been the last warrior of his generation and Adamondra has been the first warrior of a new generation and there's been a passing of the baton between those two and 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 from a good like they get on well together from what i can see and they obviously spend time and they climb together a bit as well but there's obviously been a chris is at the sort of the end of his generation and his ability to go forward and adam is sort of at the next step going forward at the moment and i'm sure that adam will get stronger and he will do more things that are a little bit harder again than the stuff he's recently done but i don't think that i think there'll be people will come out of the olympics who will be able to put Adam in the shade. And we haven't yet seen those people mm. because they haven't yet developed. And that's the thing I think that's exciting about climbing becoming a mainstream sport. You know, if you look at swimming, you know, you don't get an Ian Thorpe if swimming was a fringe sport. Yeah. You get Ian Thorpe's because they're absolutely mainstream and every possible human being can try it. And out of the, every possible human being, some of them are going to be exceptional. And to find those exceptional people, you don't, they wouldn't even get into climbing if climbing were not a Olympic sport. So I think for me, that's a, a really interesting um, thing. It doesn't create, though, the, the thing that, again, I see, you know, I talked a little bit about the, the creation of new routes. And it's not just a new route. It's not just a new route because it's a new route. Um, it's creation of standards and pushing of standards forward is more the creationist piece than just simply linking holds A, B and C and D together. But if you look at um, silence, the 15D that Adam did, you know, he talks about, you know, it, it's just easy 8B up to the crux or the first crux, like 8B. Uh, for God's sake, I mean, I couldn't, I could barely climb 8B, and that's easy for him, which is fine. But then he has a boulder problem, which is 8C plus or something, and then he's got two or three more sections of 8B, and then there's another couple of hard boulder problems, and another set, then another hard. So, so he's linking boulder problems in, in with still basically easy climbing in between. So whilst that's great, it still indicates that there's an that the the, the, the the next generation is to do every one of those 8C problems. You'd link 50 metres of 8C boulder problem and maybe there's an eight, a 9A boulder problem stuck in there as well to make it harder. So clearly, 
the next generation. There's, there's the, the challenges or the opportunity is there for the next generation to create new things. You don't think we're, when you look back at what, how you've seen it develop and where it's going, you don't think we're at the physical limit yet? No. I actually, back in 84, people were saying the same thing and I was completely um, mirthful of how what a ridiculous statements they were that to suggest that in 84 we were actually competent. It was so obvious we were barely even walking. You know, we'd get that we'd barely got out of crawling mode. Um, and so it was just so obvious that um, the opportunity to improve was continuously there. And again, when I look today at where the sport currently is, I don't believe that we're not going to take those next steps or that there will be, there will be people come along who will take those next steps who will be able to do those continuous 8C problems and say, you just go up that easy 8C chunk and then you've got a hard move. And it's not a function of people's ability. The issue is, is finding things that satisfy that need. Like that is the challenge. Like we've, we've gone from Yosemite, waste of space. We've gone from the gunks. That's not interesting. We've gone from Arapiles. Maybe there's still something there, I actually do believe. But today we're talking... Um, Cliffs in Spain, which weren't even climbed on because now they're 70 metres high, they're 25 degrees averagely overhanging and there's a lot of opportunity and they've got holds on them. Or we're climbing in bloody caves in Flatanger up in Norway, like places that people never even thought of. So we're, the world is being, is being sought or, or possibilities and, and, and physical rock things that are possible are being sought in every corner of the world. And until you find them, you cannot improve. Uh, you can't just create a route that's going to be a a 516A or B or C just because you want to. You've got to find one. And you've got to find one that has the potential to have those strings of 8C moves or whatever they are um, and, and be able to link those. But you've got to find the problems first. And once you find the problems, you get motivated. And that's really what happened for me is, you know, I climbed all my aid routes. They were all done. Then I started looking for the blank lines, did a lot of them. Then I started looking for the blanker lines. And the great thing about um, Arapiles at the time was you could abseil down and you could see there was a bunch of holds. They were a little, but they were good enough that you know you could hang on them. So therefore you had opportunity. Just because you couldn't do it was kind of irrelevant. So, you know, it was always for me, well, find the, find the opportunity and then get yourself good enough to be able to do it. And at that time, Australian crags were at the world standard. Only because people like me were doing that stuff. So what would it take for Australian climbing and, and crags to get to the world standard again, do you think? First of all, you need to find the crags. You know, like I think there's been some work done um, over the last couple of years. If you look around the Blue Mountains, the Blue Mountains moved from being the ugly duckling of um, of the climbing scene to being probably a bit more in cutting edge. I mean, places like Diamond Falls and you know, big overhanging walls that have got holds. Um, some of the stuff in the gross, I mean, this stuff looks, there's some amazing stuff now around the Blue Mountains that is climbable. And one of the, one of the big problems in the Blue Mountains is most of the most amazing rock is not climbable. And not, it's not a, the, the difference between impossible and climbable is, is, is clear. Like, it's not like, you can just say it's more blank and therefore it becomes harder. Like at some point, if it's blank, it's blank. Like there's just impossible. There's very, very clear line of what's impossible, but there's not a clear line of what is possible. Um, but you need to find rock that has holds. And so generally the easiest way to find harder routes 
which is what's being shown around the world, is to find things which are very overhanging, quite long, but not necessarily very hard. You know, if you look at the stuff in, um, in Spain, I can't remember the names of the routes, but the the previously hardest routes in the world were done. A couple of the things that Andre and um, and Sharma did in Spain were on those some of those very big cliffs, seventy meter cliffs that are massively overhanging and obviously a reasonable distance between the bolts. You can fly into space a lot, but there's there's holds. Mm. So all you need to do is be fitter to hang onto them. Mm. And the fitter you get, the, the more hold, the, the, the more obvious it becomes, the more you hang on. So finding those routes and are those routes in Australia? You know, I think Arapley's provided those. And as I said, I think, I actually think Arapley's still provides, um, has opportunity that has not yet been developed. And surprisingly, I mean, oh, maybe it's not surprisingly, um, in November, I went to Arapley's and climbed the Bard with my daughter just to show her what Arapley's was like. And um, climbing the Bard, I saw... 15 new routes that I reckon would be just fantastic and I had never seen them before and I had climbed for 15, 10 years at Arapolis continuously and I had never seen these opportunities and that was within half a day of being at Arapolis. Do you, do you have any thoughts to go and open up some of those opportunities? See how my body performs. Yeah. I need to get it back into shape which at the moment it's been in, a, been in the wars the last couple of years um, but no, I would love to climb again um, but clearly it, it at 60, you're not going to climb as you were when you're 20. It's not, uh, your body does not, does not perform in the same way at all. And it's hard to, um, yeah, just, just get old. That happens. That's it, Australia. The first layback podcast. I just want to thank Kim for taking the time out to tell us some of his stories and his philosophies and thoughts on climbing. As Kim mentioned, he'd recently undergone surgery on his ankle. So this interview happened in his house about a week after he'd come out of that surgery. And he sat the entire time very patiently telling us his story with one leg propped up on a chair. There's so much to Kim's story. It's just not possible to compress it into the duration of a single podcast. Thank you for listening. And I'd ask that you head over to thelayback.com or the Layback Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Give us a like, share it with your friends, and maybe show those less techno-abled how to install a podcast app and subscribe to the Layback. Maybe how to stream it in their car as well so they can listen during their long drives to the crag. There is plenty of great international podcast climbing content out there. And now there's even more Australian climbing podcast content coming your way. Now, wherever you're headed, May the air be crisp and free of spooge, the gravity low. May all your projects go down. And if not, may you go home sore and psyched anyway. I also want to shout out to a few people who've helped me come up with the podcast name and have given me a bit of feedback and support along the way. That's Andreas Kupka, Dylan Gilmore, Nate Burt, Steve Holloway, Mark Anderson and Chris W and many others. Thanks to my wife, Nicole, who's also been very patient and supportive through my process of setting up the podcast, despite the continual stream of climbing history books that are arriving on the doorstep from Amazon. For those of you still listening, here's a little bit of relevant Australian history to take us out. It will write a chapter like no Australian sportsman or sportswoman or sports team has written before. It's going to be Australia too. They are going to win it. Stand up, Australia! Stand up, Australia! And give these boys a cheer! We are looking for the smoke at any moment! They're about to do it! They're about to cross the line! They make a final move! America!